Jude. Now, I'd like to try to clean up a mess from last week before we dive into the doxology at the end. Dan's so good about reminding me when I turn my mic off. During last week's message, I attempted to lay out the various interpretations of verse 6, which I'll just remind you what verse 6 said. And the angels who did not stay within their proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, while laying out those positions, I mentioned that I leaned toward the position that views Jude 6 as an explanation of the events in Genesis 6. And then I took us back to Genesis 6 and offered uh, one scholar's opinion or several scholars' opinion of what Genesis 6 is actually teaching. Well, after having preached the message and received feedback, I realized that it was a mistake on my part to try to offer an interpretation of a passage I have not studied very thoroughly. My desire was to merely give the various options but in giving out those various options, I announced um, my leaning toward a certain option, and I did a sloppy job at that. <laughs> so all of that to ask that you please pray for me, because I desire as a young preacher to rightly handle God's word and not be sloppy um, and, and serve you all faithfully, and part of that, that sermon did neither. It neither handled God's word carefully nor... I think edified you. So please pray for me that I grow in my ability to rightly handle the word of truth and put my foot in my mouth less. And if you would do that, I'd be grateful. Well, we are going to look at the doxology at the end of Jude tonight. Just a brief reminder of where we've been. Um, the theme of this letter is found in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is all about fighting for the faith. And I, say, I said that in order to do that, we have to, number one, know our identity, verses 1 and 2, those who are called, loved, and kept for Jesus Christ. I also said last week that we need to know our enemy. That is, in verses 3 to 16, we need to understand who those people would be who would seek to undermine our hope in the gospel and seek to draw us away from Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that God knows who those people are. We can know who those people are. We can know who those people are by virtue of their lifestyle. Um, and I said that God has a history of judging the wicked. We see that all throughout this passage. And God knows these men, that these men are wicked, and they will be judged as a result. In verse 17, Jude begins to lay out what our responsibility is in light of all this. And I am actually going to skip over verses 17 to 23 and come back to them next week, Lord willing, because I really wanted us to, to, to I wanted, really wanted verses 24 and 25 to serve as the meditation for the Lord's Supper tonight. So that's why I'm skipping over. I just think it may be more fruitful for our time around the table to meditate on the end of this letter, which contains some of the most glorious truth in the Bible, and come back next week to verses 17 to 23 and talk about 
our responsibility. Well, since Dave helpfully read the text for us already um, in the singing, I won't take time now to reread it. I'll just dive right in to my exposition. So I have three questions that I want to ask and answer from Jude 24 and 25 tonight, and here are the three questions. Number one, how is God described in this passage? How is God described in this passage? Number two, what is God committed to in this passage? So how is God described? What is God committed to do in this passage? And then finally, what should be our response? How should we appropriately respond to who God is and what he's committed to do? Okay, so those will be our three questions that I'll help us think through just for a few moments. Before I do that, would you pray with me once more? Father, we desire tonight, just in these few moments prior to our partaking of the Lord's Supper, we just desire to right now see you for who you are, for you to once again win our confidence and trust and love through a vision of yourself and through a vision of what you promised to do for us as your people. Not only what you promised to do, but are able to do. Not only what you're able to do, but what you're willing to do and what you're eager to do and what your soul rejoices to do. So we pray that you would right now show us your heart and your commitment to us as your people that we might worship you and trust you and hope in you and rejoice in you and follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how is God described in this passage? I have three things that I want to draw your attention to, and the first is found in verse 25. It's the very first words of the song that we just sang, to the only God. So God in this passage, how is God described? First of all, he is first of all described as the only God. Now, we've been taught well over the years, and we, we, we as a result of knowing the word of God, having experienced the gospel, this can be so easy for this to just kind of go whoop in one ear and out the other. But I just want you to pause for a second and appreciate that. That the God that we have come to worship tonight, the God that we gather around the table to celebrate his work is the only God that exists. All other gods are false gods. God said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is no other God. So tonight, just as we begin to experience more, I hope, of the goodness of this God, I just want you to pause and say, this God who's de dealing this good with me is, is the only God. He's the only God. That's all I want to say about that. But he's also an able God. A-B-L-E, able. Verse 24, now to him who is able, we serve a God who is not only the only God there is, but a God who can actually do something. A God who is actually involved in people's lives. Not a God who's remotely distant, way out in heaven, uninvolved with his creation, but a God who exercises power on behalf of his people. He's a God who is able, a God who is powerful, a God who is 
able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. This God, this only God, is a God who is able. Well, what is he able to do? Well, fundamentally, we find that answer in verse 24, but the bigger answer to that is found in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior. So this God, who is the only God, is a God who is able, fundamentally, to do what? Save. He is a God who is able to save, to rescue, and he is described as the only God, our Savior. Now, that's all I want to say in the answer to that first question, who is God? He is the only God who is able to save. And that logically leads us into our next question. What is he committed to do? What does this salvation include? And it includes two things, and they're described in verse 24. Question number two, what is God committed to do? Number one, to keep you from stumbling. And number two, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And this will by far occupy the bulk of our a bulk of the sermon tonight. So let's dive right in to this first phrase, to keep you from stumbling. Now, this word, to keep, to keep you, can actually be translated to guard, to guard you from stumbling. It's different than the word translated to keep in verse 21, where it says keep yourselves in the love of God, which we'll come back to next week. We have this word translated to keep, which can literally mean to guard. I just want to read for you 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, which says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you, keep you, against the evil one. So this is a God who is able to. To save you, and that salvation includes his ability to guard you from stumbling, to protect you. This is an this is this is an active word. It's a, a word that is saying God is actually intimately involved in the keeping of his people, personally. Just as these false teachers are trying to overthrow the confidence of God's people in God, trying to undermine their confidence in God. Jude comes along and says, no, God is able to keep you from falling away like them, from stumbling. He's able to guard us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's exactly what Jude is saying here. Jude is saying, the Lord is able to rescue you from every evil, evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul concludes. So this God is able to guard us. To guard us from what? To keep us from what? From stumbling, verse 24 says. Now what does it mean to stumble? Well, in the New Testament, stumbling can refer to one of two things. It can either refer to sinning, it sometimes does refer to sinning, or it can refer to 
falling away, turning your back on Jesus and walking away from him. In what sense is Jude using the word stumble? Well, I don't think it. you have to guess at that. He's certainly not talking about sinning, although that is true. The Lord is able to protect us from sinning. But as you know, in this past week, you've sinned. And um, we can go to the Lord and ask him and pray to him regarding our sin and to protect us. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. God is able to do that, and he's eager to do that, to help us, to strengthen us. But that's not what this is, this promise is saying. This promise is saying God is able to guard you, to keep you from falling away, from turning your back on Jesus, from committing apostasy. So the sinning or the stumbling here is not the stumbling referred to in James 3.2, where James says, we all stumble in many ways. He's referring to sinning. We all sin in many ways. And he's specifically talking about with our tongues. We all say things we shouldn't. We stumble over and over again with our mouths. Rather, Jude is referring to what Peter is referring to when he uses the word stumble in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, where Peter says, if you do these things that Peter is writing, you will not fall. You will not stumble. You will not walk away from Jesus. You will not commit apostasy. So that is what God is able to do, and he's committed to do for us as his people. He is able and he is committed to keep you from stumbling you will make it safely into his heavenly kingdom. So that's the first part. He's able to keep us from stumbling. But notice the even more glorious second part. And to present you, verse 24, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's talk about present you then blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's take just that a piece at a time. To present you, literally, God is able to make you stand. God is able to present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is just the opposite of stumbling. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Over and over in the New Testament, we see this contrast between standing and falling. And that's what Jude is doing right here. He's saying, contrary to what these false teachers are trying to do, that is, cause you to stumble, cause you to fall away from Jesus, God is able to make you stand, to not fall away. And where is he going to make us stand? All the way till we get to his heavenly kingdom, standing right there in the presence of his glory. And I don't have any time to unpack that phrase, the presence of his glory. Read the book of Revelation, and you will see what what we mean by the presence of his glory. That is in the very immediate presence of God where his full glory is on display. Brothers and sisters, we will stand there. We will stand there. And God himself will present us. And how will he present us? He's going to present us blameless. He's going to present us blameless. That is, without blemish. 
This word blameless is used to refer to the Old Testament sacrifices. Listen to Leviticus chapter 1 verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. God required that all the Old Testament sacrifices that were brought to him to appease his wrath for the sins of the people would have to be without fault, blameless. And Jude is picking up on that language and saying, that's what you're going to be when you stand in the presence of his glory. But it's also used not only to describe Old Testament sacrifices, but also Jesus as the perfect sacrifice in Hebrews 9.14, where it says Christ offered himself without blemish to God. And 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish, blameless, or spot. So this word blameless is used to talk about Old Testament sacrifices, it's used to talk about Jesus, and it's also used in other places to talk about believers. Remember Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, without any such thing. I just love that language because it's getting down into the details and the fabric of who we are. It's saying when we stand before the presence of God in all of his glory, God will look at us and see no wrinkle, no spot or any such thing. No little details that would cause him, cause us to be ashamed in the presence of his glory. No shame, no spot, no wrinkle, utterly blameless, utterly without blemish. We will be respectfully, as, to say this respectfully, we will be as Christ before God. We will be as Christ before God. We will be that blameless. We will be that without blemish. We will be that without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, you don't wake up in the morning feeling that way. You are well aware of what it feels like to be blamed. I hate to be blamed. I hate it that there's any reason to be blamed. Because blame leads to shame. And God is saying, dear Christian tonight, don't worry about that when you stand before me. Don't worry about that as we walk together in this world. Don't worry about ever feeling like you are under my frown. Rather, live as you're going to live there. We're going to stand blameless. We're going to be presented before the presence of his glory, blameless, without blemish. And notice the last phrase, with great joy. Before the presence of his glory, with great joy. Now, this is almost too good to be true. This is almost too good to be true. Because in verse 24, we have this incredible promise from the only God who is able to save that when he wakes up in the morning, this is what he's committed to. He doesn't wake up in the morning. But when he wakes up in the morning, this is what he's committed to do for his people. He looks down at his people, and he says, 
I am committed to guarding them from the evil one and keeping them for myself, prevent them from ever falling away from me and bringing them safely into my heavenly kingdom. And more than that, when they get there, I am committed to presenting them, to making them stand in the presence of my glory without any blame. And they're going to experience that with great joy. Not with just joy, but great joy. I can't improve on the words of the Puritan Thomas Manton. I was reading this this afternoon, and I thought, got to get the Manton quote in the sermon. So um, let me read Thomas Manton's words about this, what he imagines when when this phrase, with great joy, with this phrase, with great joy. So here's his words. By the way, Thomas Manton's an old Puritan, wrote in the 1600s, but Christ will be glad to see you. whom he hath carried in his heart from all eternity, for whose sake he came into the world and died, and for whom he went back again into heaven, that he might negotiate with God in your behalf, and whom he now comes to receive unto himself, that you may be ever there with him where he is. And surely... You have you that have received Christ into your hearts and loved him, though unseen and served him, though with the loss and hazard of all, will be glad to see him in all his glory and royalty, especially when you shall hear him calling upon you, Come, blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. Oh, that we could act over this joy right now. Faith is a bird that can sing in winter. It's cold out there. It's cold temperature getting into winter. And in some of our lives right now, it's pretty cold too. Pretty dim, pretty quiet, pretty uneventful, or maybe massively eventful. Trials. And what Manton is saying is, go ahead and grab that bird out there and bring it here. And let it console your heart. He concludes, before Christ came in the flesh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs got a sight of him by the eagle eye of faith and rejoiced at the thought of it. John 8:56. your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Oh, surely our hearts should be warmed with the thought of that blessed day when we shall be able to say, look over there is my great Lord. So he's going to rejoice to see us just as much as we're going to rejoice to see him. So before the presence of his glory, we will be presented with great joy. So brothers and sisters, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this God and what he's done? Well, Jude tells us how we should respond in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. He says that the only appropriate response is worship. 
the only res appropriate response is to break out in song and say, glory, majesty, power, and authority be given to you. Not only before all time, before creation, back in eternity past, but right now and right through eternity. May all glory be given to you. But let me suggest a few other ways that we could respond to this. Number one, we should respond with trust. Whenever God speaks a promise to us like this, we need to take him at his word and believe it. Contrary to even what our feelings would suggest to us. Because the disposition of God toward you as his people tonight is this disposition. And the enemy, the great enemy of our souls, would have us live not under the good of this promise, but the good of some substitute reality. This promise is what God wants us to live under the good of. He wants us to wake up and say, you know what? No matter what happens today, I'm not falling away from Christ. You know what? No matter what happens today is not going to keep me from being presented in the presence of his glory with great joy. No matter how much I sin, I will be presented there spotless without any wrinkle or any such thing blameless with great joy. So we should trust when God offers a promise, we have to believe it. So take this promise and believe it. To, to your great joy and to God's great glory. God is glorified with all his heart. But when we take the promises of his word and we believe them, he's honored. It honors his word. It does not honor God to say, well, I know that's great, but, you know, it, it can't be for me. It can't be for me. And I certainly I, I, I don't want to embrace that for myself. No, we should trust. When God offers a promise, let us believe it, and let us believe this tonight. And it's as if God is bringing us an early Christmas gift and saying, there you go. Take that one. Take that one. Hold on to that. Secondly, how should we respond? Not only with trust, but with hope. We should respond with hope. We should look out at our future, our future in God's kingdom, filled with hope. Why should we have hope? Because God is able to keep us from stumbling. So we look out at the future free from fear. We don't have to worry, will this situation be the one that causes me? What if, some, what if 20 years from now I don't love Jesus anymore? This text just blows that out of your soul. Now we're going to talk about some responsibilities that we have next week. But suffice it to say that does not undermine this promise from God to keep us from stumbling. So. We must face the future with faith and not fear. Looking at the future, God is able to keep me from stumbling, and he's not only able to do it, he's willing to do it, and he's committed to do it. Why do I say that? Because the cup that we're going to drink tonight secures that. What is the new covenant that we're going to celebrate tonight? It is the purchasing of a new heart with new desires through the blood of Jesus. And the new covenant promise is that I will be their God, and they will be my people, they will never forsake me because I'll put the fear of me in their hearts and they'll never walk away from me. So the very table that we gather around reminds us of this promise. God is able to keep us from stumbling, and he will keep us from stumbling. That's why we take the cup in our hands. 
when we drink the cup, what is God is saying to us, among other things, is, I will keep you. I will keep you. You will be mine. I will be yours. So let's face the future with hope. Let's also face it with joy. With joy. If this is God's commitment to you, this ought to make you very glad. Especially, it ought to make you very glad around the Lord's table tonight. Let me read you Mark Dever's words. He says, when you come to the Lord's table, come with a happy expectancy. Come with a happy expectancy. And he says, we are not sharing a funeral meal together. We are having a dress rehearsal for the wedding supper of the Lamb. So let's get dressed. Let's get dressed. We're having a dress rehearsal for the wedding supper of a lamb. We're not gathering around to celebrate somebody who's still in the grave. So let's come with a happy expectancy. And finally, let us come with worship. So we should respond with trust, with hope, with joy, and with worship. Just a brief word about each one of those phrases at the end of verse 25. Big word, word. Jude says, to the only God be glory. That is, may the may he be seen for who he is. May his weighty presence be seen. Be, be all glory to him. May all majesty, that picks up on God's king, king of kings, Lord of lords status. May all majesty be given to him. May all power be given to him. That is dominion. That is control over all things, and may all authority, his rightful place in ruling all things, may that be given to him. May all glory, majesty, power, and authority be given to him. So trust, hope, joy, and worship should be our response. Since God does all the protecting, all the saving, and all the preserving, God receives all the glory for it. Now let me conclude with this. How is God able to save us in this way? How is God able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy? Because in and of ourselves, we should not be presented blameless because we have tons of blame because of our sin. And in and of ourselves, we should not be presented before God with great joy, but with great fear. When people were presented with the glory of God, when we see that in the Bible, they hit the floor. And Jude is saying, you're going to stand with joy. How is that possible? Well, it's through the one phrase that I left out on purpose, and it's in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. And he's the... He's the key that hangs it all together, that holds it all together. It is through Jesus Christ that we will stand in the presence of God, blameless on that great day, because on the cross, he paid for the the full penalty for our sin and provided us with his perfect righteousness. So when we stand before God, we are fully conformed, both in terms of our, our outward righteousness and our inward righteousness in that in that moment will be glorified we'll be without sin and we'll be presented there clothed in the wedding garments that christ has purchased for us 
the, the white garments without stain or wrinkle or any such thing. And we will be made, we will be conformed to his moral character. So God will present us blameless, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because who Christ is and what he's done. So God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. So as we gather around the table tonight, we know all these promises from God are ours. As we take that bread, we look at that bread and we see we see Jesus who stumbled and staggered to the cross. That we might not stumble, but arrive safely into his heavenly kingdom. And we see a Jesus who is presented before God in all the fury that deserves our blame. He was treated blameworthy so that we might be presented blameless. And so this is all centered around why we're gathered. All this truth is meant to, to help us tonight to take the Lord's Supper Remember Jesus and to remember that the reason that we have hope for the future, that we will be kept from stumbling, and the reason why we have hope that when we stand in the presence of God's glory, it will be without blame and with great joy is because Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would right now in the hearts of your people preach a far better sermon on this passage than any human being ever could because this truth is is so infinitely precious and glorious and i just pray we pray together that you would strengthen us with this promise and that you would help us as we go around your lord's uh, around the lord gather around your table tonight that we would do so with great joy, that we would do so with this perspective firmly fixed in our minds and hearts, and we would do so not as a funeral meal together, but as a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is going to be one great supper. And even so, we ask that that meal, Lord Jesus, would come quickly. Amen. Well, let's make our way back to the Fellowship Hall.